0: I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the, the art of unknowing. The great Taoist uh, teacher and practitioner, Chang Tzu, once reported his experience as such. He said, I awoke from dreaming That I had been a butterfly. And then I wondered am I a man dreaming of having, who has just dreamed of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And it's a kind of interesting place to be, I imagine, that kind of a question. this world that we can explore of inner and outer of this and that can be known in many ways understood in many frameworks that are really helpful, really useful. And there are ways and dimensions of what is true about this that we call the world or the self or the arising of the two together that are in certain ways beyond the conceiving mind's capacity to grasp or to to somehow contain within its conceptual structures. There is a vastness to this universe that is beyond what we can conceive. And they tell us that those little spots of light out there are, you know, hundreds and millions and billions of light years away. Does that mean anything? Really? Like, it's quite a long distance, I get that. But I can't really conceive and that some of them are not just actually spots of light that we call a star, but they're galaxies. It's like there's something vast about what we are in the midst of that our mind in its thinking, can't really extend to. And we can come up with numbers, with large numbers of zeros after them as a way of trying to represent really big things. (coughs) But do they really capture what the essence of the true experience of that vastness is? I'm not sure. And we might sometimes just... Reflect a little when we stand under the vastness of the night sky and the, the beautiful half moon. I don't know if you've seen tonight with a, quite a perfect penumbra moonbow of rainbow colours around it. And just, we can call it a something, I'm not even sure it's a penumbra to be honest, that could be the wrong word. But that's not the thing is it? It's this, wow, look at that, isn't that amazing? And sometimes the mind just sort of opens in that appreciative amazement, that sense of something mysterious, something remarkable, something in a certain way inexplicable about life, about the fact that we're here at all, actually. As uh, you know, we could consider that it's kind of amazing that we're here at all. We take it for granted because it's been going on for as long as we've been here. But uh, the fact that it's happening didn't have to happen, it seems. But it did. And yet it's not easy for us to sit in that place of openness. It's not easy for us, I think, to inhabit the condition of uncertainty, of unknowing. We tend to somehow want to organize it and package it in order to be able to work on it or with it or around it, depending on what it is. And we can see that religions and science, which is in many ways our most popular modern day religion, at least in the West and maybe elsewhere, I don't really know, tends to fill in that empty space with conce- conceiving, with ideas, with beliefs, with systems. And, you know, the one thing we can sort of see if we looked at Some of those ideas that everybody used to believe seem a little strange to us now, like the one about, well, maybe this is how some of you conceive this, but you know, that there was some guy in sort of out there in the middle of nothing who kind of just decided to have something by going, yes, let's do it. And here it was, bang, took seven days apparently. But because there wasn't anything at that point that involved a planet spinning around, I don't know what the day could mean. Obviously, that's just the way of representing some kind of unit of time that didn't exist until a planet got made to turn around once and measure a day. And we might kind of chuckle about that. We probably, if we're you know honest with ourselves, we realize it's maybe a little more subtle than that kind of idea. Maybe we disregard such religious uh, suggestions for the beginning of existence, the beginning of the world out of hand. No, I don't know if we have a basis for that either. But... Maybe we refer more to the, uh, the science of it, you know. In fact, scientists you know, worked out eventually that there was nothing. absolutely nothing. And then suddenly it exploded into something. It's called the Big Bang. Nobody did it, but it happened in a way that doesn't actually sound that different than what is described in those old religious texts, apart from the agency, attribution to something. But we don't really know if it happened that way. We weren't there. We might not be able to see beyond the point of that explosion. The Buddha suggests it's been going on quite regularly in that fashion, starting and finishing for quite a while, longer than we could in any way possibly conceive. I don't know if that's true either. Explanations at that level are kind of limited. and. likewise for what happens in terms of our own existence, how it came to be, what happens when it comes to end. There's a lot of debate. Are we open to leaving some of these questions unanswered? Or Not so much unanswered, because we might have our sense of what seems most likely, most useful, most true. But without somehow fixing that as absolute, without tightening around that as somehow the way it is, but more the sense of, well, it could be like this, and maybe that will make sense, yeah. So I'll try it out as a working hypothesis, which is very different than a kind of a, a certainty. There's a humility that that requires and that that involves that is both challenging but also somewhat relieving. It offers a sense of possibility. When we don't narrow things down to certainties, what we're left with is contingency and potentiality and possibility. And there's actually something rather uplifting about that sense of, well, it's possible that there's some guy up there Or maybe it's a woman who's just gonna, you know, make it happen if it all comes apart. Or some dynamic physical quantum process that requires nothing to be discontent with its nothingness and explode into somethingness in a micro flash. Maybe that's so. But what we find is that. um, We're not that often, I think, content in that somewhat contingent uncertainty. That the urge to have more knowledge, more information, more certainty drives us to seek what turns out to be more and more and more information. And as we know, we characterise our age by the remarkable amount of information we have. We have access to it from so many channels, from so many sources, in so many forms. And the interesting thing is that knowledge promises something in the sense of capacity, power, security, the ability to control or manipulate. If we know what's going on, we can do something about it. So it seems. We know more and more about what's going on than we have ever done. The amount of knowledge that human beings had, a couple of centuries ago, it was possible to get it into one person's brain, if they were smart these days it's well beyond that well beyond that and yet for all the amount of information that we have does it bring us security you know we can turn on a news channel 24 hours news we've got it we can find out what's going on anywhere anytime can't we and we do sometimes does it doesn't make us feel more reassured. What my observation is, it actually makes us more anxious. We actually get more worried when we see what's going on. When we know more and more, we can find out what's going on. We get more anxious. And we live in a culture in which this, the attempt to resolve the anxiety through getting more information in order to create certainty doesn't work. Because the information doesn't give us the reassurance we seek for. You know, there is something we can be certain about. And that is that all of this one day stops. We call that death. Now that is actually the only thing that's for sure going to happen. Everything else is uncertain. Not guaranteed. Somewhat unpredictable. And that particular certainty does not reassure us. It doesn't matter. Oh, that's what's going to happen. Now I know. I can stop worrying and thinking about it. (sighs) It's just going to go out, gone, dead, whatever that is. And this is a condition we need to see, I think. And there's a connection between our relationship to knowledge and information and the way we use it and project it in time. Wendell Berry writes of this in a poem I like to recite and reflect on. He says, When despair for the world comes upon me, And I awake at night at the slightest sound In fear of what my life and my children's lives will be. I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come in to the presence of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And I'm always struck by that line. I come in to the presence of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief that way in which our knowledge and information, we tend to pick it up in a kind of a way that leads us to anticipate what has not yet come, which we actually cannot address for the very simple reason that it has not actually happened, in fact may not. As Mark Twain once observed, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But it's the thinking about, the fear, the worry. That becomes the worst experience. And there's a connection to that tendency between our seeking for information to figure out how do I resolve, how do I predict, how do I control what's coming towards me when actually we can't. Because it's such a complicated matrix of conditions, of causes, of factors that there's no way we can know until it is that it's going to be this way. We have many ways, there are many ways we're just not in control. Receiving a little feedback that I asked for with regard to temperature, sent the message down to facilities, can we have a little bit more heat? And the message comes back, well, the system is complicated. We're not sure the people who are here right now know how to make that thing do that. I mean, I've got a heater at home, you just turn the dial up, but obviously it's not one of those. And it's like, okay, so I don't know if it's happened already and it still feels cold, or if it's going to happen and it might get warmer, or if it's too hot down the back now and people are kind of roasting. We don't know with these sort of things. So many things are like that. (laughs) And we have to live in this condition. We have to live in this condition. But so often the way we attempt to deal with that is through the way we relate to experience in terms of time and the construct of what that involves. A construct of past and future, which seems so real to us, which sometimes seem more substantial than what's actually happening right now. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it? a patchwork fabric of images and recollections of little bits of the past that feels like that's what the past was, when, of course, it isn't. It's just a few bits we've managed to remember and strung together because to actually remember the past as it was would require it to be playing out in real time. The thing is way more complex than the little bits we've retained. And there's not space for that because the present is playing out in real time. There's no room to get that other thing to happen here. And likewise the future. Now, it's not that the past doesn't have its place, but likewise the future. It's not waiting for you around the corner. There isn't a cupboard in which all the thoughts you're going to have tomorrow are stored and they suddenly will appear saying, it's January the 2nd, here are your thoughts. We've been keeping them warm for you. (laughs) They just don't exist. When we operate in life primarily oriented towards time, it makes for a sense of struggle. It creates this hope of improvement on the way things are. And of course it generates the fear that that's not what's going to happen. Catherine referred to that a little this morning. That sense of how when we're waiting... It's often to do with some sense of something that we're not finding easy to experience. Counting the, counting the days, I think she said. I sometimes counted the sittings. Worked out how many meditations there were to go before the end of the retreat. And then started working out how many minutes that was. It was quite a few. Duration has a relationship to the word endurance. Hmm? Placing oneself into duration is endurance. Now, of course, there's something appropriate about those terms and frameworks because there's something about what that speaks to us in terms of patience and commitment and resolve to stay with and sustain. But at another level, It creates a kind of a struggle for us based on something that doesn't really exist. And we laughed about it a bit last night, you know, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve or whatever that was that's been happening continuously for 24 hours. And then you realize it's been going on for 24 hours and that's kind of arbitrary too. It actually turns out that perihelion, the point at which this planet is the closest to the sun, which is actually the, the reference for the new year, is on July the 4th we've got another three days if we want to actually align it with something that's going on in the cosmos as opposed to something we just agreed on and said, well, let's do it then. So it's just an agreement, isn't it, New Year's? We know that. And agreements have their place. Agreements have their value. But we start to think in terms of progress and regress, going forward or backward. And it's kind of painful, isn't it? Because it's always in relationship to the sense of who or what we are, that we engage in these processes of measurement, of which time is one of the dimensions against which we map that measurement. And there's something you know, appropriate to acknowledge development, growth, or to recognize the ways in which we are learning, developing, unfolding. It's really important, in fact, that we do that. So far as that sense of progress or development is based in some framework of measurement that requires a comparison, we so easily get caught up in some way that we've based our sense of value on those measurements. And those measurements are concepts, they're just ideas. They're just things we've constructed in order to be able to talk about them and relate to them. But they don't ultimately tell us that much to say, you know, I used to only be able to sit for 30 minutes, now I can sit for 45. It doesn't tell us that much really. As I often say, some of you all have heard me, the Buddha didn't have a watch. can't imagine he ever sat for 45 minutes and thought, made it. Or had to change his posture after 35 and thought, failed. Wouldn't have happened, would it? And we can measure how calm our mind is by how many thoughts seem to have appeared or how long it takes to notice them. Start counting them, adding them up. You know, sometimes people say, God, I could only be attentive for three breaths, you know. God. You know, I'm really not doing very well. Someone else is thinking, three breaths, three whole breaths. You were attentive for that. It's so relative, isn't it? It's so dependent on what our frame of reference is. One day, three breaths it seems like a remarkable achievement. Other days, it's kind of that was, you know, that was the distracted period. Whenever we get involved with measurement, and the kind of constructs we use for that, such as time and things that we might appreciate or value or not, that we're looking at to see. There's a way in which we're trying to somehow form a sense of a centre that we can orient around, a sense of a location that we can articulate. Location is real, but what we articulate about it is inevitably something short of what is that locatedness that we can sense, but then when we start to articulate, we say it in terms of, okay, my body's here. What do I mean? Body? Well, okay, these sensations are happening here, this um, organic structure is here, sure. Yeah, that's okay, that's true. But um, we go beyond that mostly, we tend to start thinking in terms of how we ap- we apply some sort of qualitative or value factor to those simple things, like how long it was here for, or what it feels like, not just pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, but um, you know, does it feel good? Does it feel bad? We jump from the sense of pleasant to the value of good, from the sense of unpleasant to the value of bad, and there's no absolute correlation between those two. Sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. We can measure how, you know, how much loving-kindness we feel is available. we sort of think, well, yesterday I was a bit more friendly, today I'm feeling a bit less, you know. And as if somehow, oh, maybe the practice isn't working. I hope it's been expressed clearly enough, I don't need to say again, that that's really not how we can usefully look at the process. But part of what's going on is that we're kind of trying to, in the different ways we measure ourselves, which is part of giving ourselves a sense of who we are. It's not like we just want to know, you know, and we don't care, whatever it is, as long as I just know who I am. No, we actually want to kind of have a sense of being able to measure or evaluate ourselves in a certain way. And one of the primary ways we want to be able to do that is to actually have a confidence and a certainty that the way we are, or at least the way we present, is going to be liked by other people. It's going to be appreciated, it's going to be valued, or at the very least, it's not going to be rejected or attacked. And we can become so, so worried about and concerned about and paying careful attention to what we do or what we say or what we wear or how we are to try and somehow prevent ourselves from being the recipient of that kind of judgment that kind of criticism, that kind of rejection. And of course, all of those experiences are understandably painful. And it makes sense. We might not wish to experience them. But as speaking in a couple of the groups and thought it would be useful just to lay this out, one of the things that goes on with that that we don't always see, that we might think, well, well why can't I? You know, it was, I think it was Lao Tzu. This must be the day for the Taoists. Lao Tzu said, if you want people to like you, you will become their prisoner. If you want them to like you more than you want to be true to who you are, I would say. That's true. It's fine to want them to like you. But if you try and be, or pretend to be other than what and who you are in order to get that liking, we actually become bound in that endeavour. And it can be something painful and not unusual to Spoken about and to see, and certainly I've reflected on this a lot for myself in my own experience, seeing those ways in which we do that. You know, kind of quite like it if you'd like the Dharma talk. You might not, but I'd quite like it if you did because then maybe you might like me. You know, I'd more like it if you like the Dharma because that's the real <laughs> stuff, but actually, I'd kind of like it if you'd like me too. <laughs> you know? kind of human, it's kind of natural, and you know, it goes really, really deep. This isn't just surface psychological, oh, come on, get a bit of maturity, don't be so worried about that stuff. Until relatively recently in human history, and I'm talking probably several thousand years, maybe a little bit longer, which is just a tiny fragment on the end of human existence as a species, one human being out there by themselves was nothing but dinner for a whole lot of other creatures that were bigger, faster, had longer teeth, stronger claws, and hunted in packs. One human being by themselves was dead meat. Together in a tribe with a group of others, we were actually pretty good. We could deal with pretty much anything else and any other creature out there. So it became, and it was for pretty much the entire human history, essential that we make sure we do not get offside with our group or our tribe. We need them to survive. And so we want them to like us. We don't want to look different. We don't want to be different. We don't want to upset them, particularly the big ones or the leaders of the group. It's scary because if they say, you're out of here, we're dead. So a lot of that stuff, it's really useful to understand the very deep survival drives that push us or propel us to try and present in a way that's going to be okay, which means I've got to know what everyone else thinks about me, which I don't, of course, know. And I've got to try and work out how I should be in order to be okay and liked and therefore included and not rejected and therefore not eaten. Now... Fortunately, in this day and age, we're very unlikely to be uneaten if someone, for some reason, reacts against the colour of our shirt and thinks, I don't like that. We might still spend some time thinking, oh, I quite like this colour. Maybe they'll like it too. Um, Had a few compliments for the shirt, so, you know. (laughs) I notice that when I get it out. I think, oh, it's a nice colour. Hmm." But what is it to not know what people think of us? Because we don't, actually. To sit in the uncertainty of how are they relating to me? Which is part of what happens here, because we're not talking. We're not telling each other, it's okay, you're okay, I like you, You, do you like me? It's great, okay, we're safe then, phew. (laughs) We're not doing that. And so we're left in the uncertainty of, do they like me? Is it okay? Am I okay? Do I like them? I don't know. Can we actually rest in that and see that actually it's okay here? There's a basic safety and goodness that's playing out in what we're doing. We don't need to know. We don't need to know. But we need to be compassionate towards that urge to know. And particularly where it shows in that pressure to try and fit in or conform or be good, right, nice, liked, or even more painful, better than. So I not only get to stay in, but I get to go to the top of the class, stand at the front of the line, or be in charge of the whole you know, thing going on. And at the same time, of course, we're terrified that we might turn out to be not quite as good as all the others, or even worse than them. And even if they don't exclude me, they put me at the end of the line, and then that's the one the wolves pick off. (laughs) Really, that's how it used to be. Sometimes it doesn't feel that different. So there's a reason why it's got so much pull and charge for us. So there's this movement we have towards knowing the way things are. This movement we have towards kind of defining the sense of what it is that we are in terms of our stories, our experiences, our history. And it's fine to have some sense of where we come from in those terms and something, again, Catherine spoke of a couple of nights ago, that sense of the the larger context of our history. And that's part of what's true. But it also doesn't absolutely define what's true it doesn't contain all of what's true in that historical geographic geographical genetic epigenetic cosmic story it's some of it and it's important that we include it we don't disregard it but it's not all of it so there's a question here about our willingness to be at ease with uncertainty, with contingency, with not being able to quite nail it down in the way we might wish to be able to. Not being able to quite land a sense of absolute certainty about what's happening here. There's a security that comes, there's a feeling of apparent ease, relief, or safety that are when we can say, I know. This is how it is. And there's a awkward, scary and of course, you know, at school if a teacher asks you a question, you say I don't know. You don't get a lot of credit for that. It's like stupid. <laughs> Isn't it? We we actually we take quite a bit of flack for not knowing if we don't have the answer to the question, if we don't have the information that we're supposed to have. And we get a lot of credit if we do. And we can say, Yeah, I know and wow. You know, we give a lot of credit to that capacity, and it's a great capacity, not knocking it. But the intellectual mind really has to be encouraged and invited to show and to use its beauty and its strength, but also to know its limits. It seems to me that this is essential in spiritual practice and deepening. It might be a little uncomfortable. But as Voltaire once said, he said, Uncertainty is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. (laughs) I think he's right in many cases. The uncertainty, however, has with it this Sense of danger that we pull away from this out of controlness. This, I don't know what to do here if I don't know exactly what's going on. And as I say this, I don't want to be taking away from the value of understanding what's going on in our process, from our history, from our immediacy. All of that kind of information is really useful. It really has its place in being able to unpack, and being able to handle, and being able to skillfully hold and digest those patternings and those in a way outcomes of what has gone before that still arise or that arise afresh in the present in our lives but there's something else too about that hold and urge we have for certainty for knowledge We kind of need to consider exploring a little more deeply. I think about ten or eleven years ago, I was teaching in Australia in uh, the Dharug National Park in New South Wales, and Wat Buddha Dhamma a Monastery it had become more of a retreat centre by that time. And I'd arrived the day before the retreat um, to have a little time just to land and sort of get over some of the jet lag before beginning teaching. And uh, one of the things I like to do when I arrive and just to help my body adjust is to go for a run. And uh, so I went out from the little cootie, the little hut that I was staying, which was in, about, I guess, half a mile from where the actual little sort of retreat centre part of the monastery was. I just went for a run off along the track. and um, I've been running regularly since I was a teenager and I do it a lot, most of the time, anyway. Um, I like to do that. And I was off running, enjoying myself, and then I was going through the forest there. And it's this beautiful sort of, um, I don't know if it's, tropical or rainforest or whatever anyway it was forest I wasn't familiar with it It was a new kind of forest to me I was enjoying it very much but what I noticed was I couldn't get a view from anywhere and I really like views I like to go up to the top of hills and mountains and look and see and as I was going along the path I saw what seemed to be a a nice hill rising up to the side of the path and I thought oh maybe if I go up there I can get a view and see where I am so I left the path and I went up the went up the went up the um the hill and I'm someone who spent quite a lot of time in the wilderness, the outdoors, so I was pretty relaxed doing this, you know, just keeping a check on what was happening. As I went up to the top of the hill and I had a look around, I couldn't actually see very much because at the top of the hill there was trees. And it wasn't much really much better than down below. So I thought, no, oh, oh well, I'll go back down and keep going with my run. So I walked back down to the track. It was, you know, it was about, probably maybe five, ten minutes up the hill, so I thought, just go back down to the track. Then I went down five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Didn't see the track. Oh, okay, interesting. Hmm, maybe I missed it. Okay, back up the hill. Where's the track? Didn't, got up to the top. There's no track. Oh, what happened? My gosh. Looked around, and I'd paid attention to where I was facing, what I was doing. I'd do that. and I thought, hmm, it's got to be down there. Went back down. Didn't find it. Oh, maybe I lost track of time. Maybe I was going up there for 20 minutes. I haven't gone down far enough. Went down, 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 down. No track better go back up and make sure I can find out at least the one place I know is the top of the hill. Back up the hill. It was starting to get dark at this point. It was starting to get dark. I got up to the top of the hill and I thought, I know the track's down there. I'm sure it's down there. But I can't find it. And it's getting dark. I don't want to injure myself. It's kind of steep. And there's wild creatures. It's Australia. I come from New Zealand. We don't have anything wild in the terms of animals. There, there No mammals in New Zealand until human beings turned up. And um, no snakes, no spiders that bite you that are nasty, no scorpions. And Australia, of course, as you know, is full of those things. Um, So I was starting to get a little bit worried, but I thought, "It's, it's all right. I know where the path is, I know where the path is, but I thought, maybe I'd better not go down and try and find I could hurt myself. It's getting dark. I can't really see anymore very much. So I started to gather together a pile of leaves thinking, hmm, gosh. You know, this could be a little cool. I'm only wearing a running singlet. It's February in Australia. I'm not expecting to get cold up there, but I'm thinking this is a little embarrassing. But at least I know where the path is, because it's just down there. <laughs> and then as I was doing this, and I was just starting to sort of contemplate that, gosh, maybe I'm going to spend a night out here. Hmm. The moon came out, and as the moon, and it was pretty close to the full moon, as it just shone through and started to light up, I just suddenly thought, actually, you know, I don't know where the path is and just bang it just burst through my consciousness the realization and it was terrifying there was this existential survival terror I'm going to die up here I don't know which way I'm facing I don't know where the path is maybe I've gone and got myself completely 180 degrees disoriented nobody knows I'm here they won't even come looking for me until I don't turn up and give the opening talk tomorrow And it was like a lightning bolt through my whole body. I can virtually feel the resonance of it still when I talk about it 11 years later. And it just went, (laughs) terror, terror. And then it was gone. And I was like, oh, you don't know where the path is. Actually, what you do know is the path is not down there. (laughs) Where you think it is, where you're so sure it is. Because you've been down there and you know it's not down there. So why don't you try just orienting... 20 degrees clockwise and go down there and see. And if it's not down there, come back up, take another 20 degrees, go down there. You're at the top of a hill. It's got to be down there somewhere. So I just went 20 degrees clockwise. There was enough light from the moon for me to feel confident to go down. I went down. 15 minutes. There was the path. Bang. And so I made my way back to the cootie, a little bit embarrassed, covered in scratches and soot from the the, the bush that had a fire through it the year before. i rather glad that uh, I didn't have to give the opening talk that night. But what was really interesting as I reflected on this experience was what had happened to me. I had been so certain that I knew where the path was. That I wouldn't actually let myself contemplate the uncertainty, the fact that I didn't know it. And so long as I held on to the view and belief that I knew where it was, I couldn't find it because it wasn't there. And only when I was willing to face the fear, and I wasn't willing to, it just happened, I didn't choose it, but something in terms of the light of understanding just dawned, oh, that's what's true, you don't know. And sometimes we have to face that uncertainty, that not knowing, that place in which we let go into how it is in order to find a new orientation in order to find a new way on the path. And that's not easy for us. I don't know if it happens too often until we have no choice about it. But it happens when we come to that place and we're willing to stay there. And we have the courage to stay present with the places that We can't quite figure out or explain. We don't know how we got there necessarily or where we're going. We might have a few ideas, but they're not certainties. They're just possibilities. There's so much we can't really understand about what's happening. We can't quite figure it out. We can't know it. We don't actually need to. But we can notice what happens when we turn out of a sense of fear to that attempt to find security through certainty, that it's actually contraction, it's tightening, and it shuts down possibilities to the extent that we think, I don't know, oh, I can't do it because this is how it has to be done and I can't do that. There was me trying to find the path, it must be down there and I can't find it. What's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? I went up and down that line four or five times. And the first time should have told me it wasn't there. Things happen that are mysterious and inexplicable in life, sometimes. I remember when I was uh, first uh, traveling in Asia and in India and uh, I sat my first meditation retreat and I don't think I had a clue what was going on. They certainly never explained it anywhere near as well as what you guys got it explained to, me, I think. <laughs> Maybe that's not a fair thing to say, but that's really what it seems like. I'm not saying it wasn't really good teachings. Just uh, the emphasis wasn't on trying to make sense of what was going on. At least not my experience of it. But afterwards I thought something about that just grabbed me. It was like, yes, I want to do this more. And so I was then traveling on from where that was in Budgaya and Bihar in northern India which is the the place of the Buddha's birth, sorry, the Buddha's enlightenment. And I went to Calcutta, which is uh, where my grandmother lived, who I'd never met or lives some of the time still, and lived at that time. And uh, she's Indian, Bengali, and uh, wanted to say hello and say, hi, I'm your grandson. And I never met her before. But while I was there, I also um, thought I might do another retreat. So I I went along. There was I'd got this address for a name of a teacher from the one retreat I'd been at. Who I thought, oh, well, I'll go and see if I can find this teacher. Um, and I went to the place where we were supposed to live, the Mahabodhi temple in Calcutta. And I said, oh no, Manindra, his name was. Manindras, Mani, Manindraji, he's not here. He's gone. We don't know when he'll come back. He never tells us. And he's like that. And uh, so I thought, oh, okay, can't see him. I'll go and. Uh, Found some there was another retreat going on, some teacher I'd never heard of before, but it was meditation retreat, so I thought I'd go and there was someone leading the retreat and then there was this guy wearing a white outfit who was sitting beside the one leading it, who didn't say a thing. But at the beginning he just bowed to me. Smiled at me or something. I can't remember exactly now. And I did the retreat and it was good. That was completely different than the one I'd already done. I was completely confused, didn't know what was going on. I thought these were the same practice, but they weren't, so well, they were but they looked kind of different. And at the end of the retreat, this guy in white walked up to me and handed me a card and said, come and see me. And my first response, if I'm honest, was, why do I want to come and see you? (laughs) Then I looked on the card and it said, Acharya Anagarika Munindra Ji, Teacher, homeless, Anagarika Munindra. It was him, the guy I was looking for. I don't know how that happened. It was kind of amazing for me to think, wow, he found me. Or somehow we found each other. He was a really important teacher for me. He was a really important teacher for me. (laughs) The first thing he told me was after those two retreats, he said, when I said, should I do this? Should I do that? Practice like these guys? Practice like those guys? He said, it doesn't matter. Just do what works. Oh, really helpful piece of advice. I've I've repeated it many times to my students. Some of you will have heard me say, it's okay, you can do it this way, you can do it that way. See what works. A year later when I came back to India wanting to spend some time with them and I thought maybe I'd actually even ordain with them and uh, be a full-time student. It didn't work out that way, but I again came to Calcutta, went to look for Melindra and they told me, he's not here. We don't know when he's coming back. I thought, it's Manindra, he's like that. Okay, at least I know that this is what he does. So I went to have a cup of coffee or chai probably in a, in a local cafe and as I sat down I just caught the eye of someone else. You do when you're travelling sometimes and he caught my eye. and We just smiled, we sometimes do. And Normally then you go back to your cup of tea but actually we both somehow held that gaze and then we kind of got a little bit closer and we started talking and he told me that he was trying to find a teacher in Lucknow who was kind of, Secret or you couldn't find him. You had to know someone who knew him. And somebody had given me the address of this teacher just a few days before I came to Kolkata and said, maybe you want to see this guy. So I had the address of this teacher in my wallet. And he said, I've just come from the Mahabodhi Society. melindra arrived tonight. He's leaving tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I said, here's this piece of paper. There's your teacher. And I went. And um, again, it was like, how did that happen? At the exact moment I needed that piece of information, it came to me, and I went and saw him, and he said, we're going to Siliguri near Darjeeling." Ealing. And he said, come. And I said, oh, I think I need to go back and get some things. I'll come in the morning. And I went, and it was, a, again, a really important time with him for me. And it's like, how do I explain that? Coincidence, sure. That's how we explain things we can't explain. But sometimes things happen that just kind of open us up to something more mysterious taking place. When I did that very first retreat, though, as I say, I didn't really understand what the heck had happened or was happening. I knew A, it was good, B, that I wanted to do it more, though I was kind of scared about what that might involve. But I also had this really weird sense that was like a confidence, which I cannot to this day explain, that said, you've done this before. Now, I know I had not done that before in any living memory. And I don't know what that means, but there was something familiar about it at the same time as it was completely new and rather bemusing to me. Now, we could say, oh, and as I had to thought, maybe it's about rebirth and I did this in a past life, but I don't know. Maybe it's about the fact that human beings have done this before and something in me is connected to that knowledge of that and the some kind of cosmic consciousness connection, but I don't know. Maybe it's just some completely deluded thought and I've never done it before ever. I don't know. But the effect of that sense of maybe, or in fact, it wasn't maybe, it's I've done this before, was actually a sense of confidence and faith that this was something to go forward with. And to some extent, I'm here because of that. I don't know how that works. But actually, I don't need to know how it works. I know that it works. And that's enough. So, the, the process of being able to hold that open space of unknowing, of uncertainty, it's fruitful. It's something that allows potentiality to come forth, to come forward, to touch us. Sometimes, of course, it's scary, as I've said, and that entry into the unknown, that entering into the territory where we cannot organize ourselves to prepare for it because we don't know what it will be or what it will require. That is actually kind of challenging for us, and yet it also is a support for beginning to emerge from within the confines and the limits of the belief that we need that construct of self in order to be able to function and operate. Because actually the most fundamental things are not coming from that. They're coming through it, sometimes affected and distorted by it, sometimes not. But they're not coming from that construct of self. That we need a certain courage of heart and which doesn't mean we don't have fear but that the fear that might arise we hold with kindness and with a sense of aspiration of possibility because so much is possible for us human beings and this was the buddha's interest too what is possible for a human being what can be known by a human being, what can be discovered through human endeavor? This was his interest too, and his teaching, his sharing, and his offering to us so i'd like to conclude with a a quote from someone who I feel fortunate and blessed to have known as a teacher and also have as a friend and uh, in, in some ways it feels really right for me also to be honouring him. Ajahn Sachito is a wonderful teacher, awesome practitioner and a very human being. And he's also a teacher for Catherine Akinshino and myself and a friend too and a point of meeting that actually for me was a uh, a great reference for the sense of, oh, yeah, we can do this, having never done it, the three of us together, and it'll be fine. Um, so I want to share this piece from Ajahn Sachito. He gave, he said what I'm going to share with you in a talk he gave in India that second time I was in India, and he'd just been on um, pilgrimage. We're still in the middle of a pilgrimage, and at the point he came to, to Budgaya, where I was on retreat, He'd just uh, recently survived being mugged by machete-wielding bandits who had at one point threatened to cut off his head. And his response to it had been to offer him his head. Remarkable guy. I remember talking with him later. He said, you know, I realized that these guys were scared. And actually what they needed to feel was there was no threat. But he was also, he said, aware that there was no certainty what was going to happen here. But anyway, he gave this talk that I still regard as one of the most wonderful Dharma talks I ever heard, and this is a piece from it. He said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life the nobility of our purpose. The aspiration of our life says, keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is, to live in accordance with truth to honour truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in the capacity and skill for using the knowledge we have in a way that serves and the helpful understanding it can bring us. And may we also deepen in the trust and the courage of that dimension of of unknowing that is ripe with potential and possibility that opens us to the mysterious vastness the boundless and the free for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings So thank you for your practice and your presence, and please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.